This is Mark Mangini, and you're listening to The Optical. This is episode 6B of the Optical Podcast, where we'll be talking with sound designer Mark Mangini, who one of his first jobs in motion pictures was cutting sound for Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we'll also have a discussion about the go motion effects in Dragon's Lair. If you missed 6A, I'd go to the website and check it out. We talked with Joe Fordham of Cinefix and Brian Newell about Raiders of the Lost Ark interviewed Thane Morris about his pyrotechnic and physical effects work on Raiders, Dragon Slayer, and more, and also spoke with Jamie Benning, creator of the Filmumentaries behind-the-scenes documentary format. A quick note, there's just one more week to help support the podcast during our fundraiser for Season 2, and for also building the new website that will eventually index the print edition of Cinefx. It's going to be a long project, but... We really need your help to get started. So if you go to booster.com slash optical podcast, and the link will also be on the blog, you can buy a t-shirt and help support the podcast. We could really use your help. Please go today, booster.com slash optical podcast. The last day for the fundraiser is Sunday, July 20th. And a big thank you to those of you who have already contributed. Joe, another Joe, Terry, Eric, Jerry, Brent, Tom, Rob, Brian, Doug, another Brian, Janine, and Eric. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your support. Now, let's talk about sound. Here with me is Mark Mangini, who is a sound designer and re-recording mixer. Thanks for being on, Mark. It's a a pleasure. I I can't wait to see what questions you have for me. (laughs) Thanks. Well, well, first of all, sound designer, I kind of get. What is a re-recording mixer? Well, this is a sort of a controversial topic because the titles that we take are kind of in flux and some uh, a certain amount of controversy surrounds them. On mm. some level, sound designer encompasses re-recording mixer. In, in a literal sense, a re-recording mixer is the person who sits at the console, the mixing console in a film mix and records the final soundtrack to the film. Mm. And uh, those duties are usually divided into food groups of dialogue, music and sound effects. Traditionally, for maybe 60 or 70 years, as long as there's been sound, that was done by one trained professional in the re-recording arts, if you will. And Mm. that's to be differentiated from what was then called the supervising sound editor or the sound effects editor who prepared the sounds that needed to be mixed. And those were two very, very distinct disciplines requiring very, very different technical skill sets as well as creative skill sets. In the modern era of filmmaking, and I'll just call that post-Star Wars, (laughs) those two disciplines began to fuse to today where it's much more common that the person who creates the materials with which a mix is is created from is the same person who does the actual mixing of them. Mm. And that's where the term sound designer started to get some traction in the industry. And it kind of finds its origins in Walter Murch and Apocalypse Now, Mm. when he realized he wasn't just editing sound and he wasn't just recording sound. He called himself a designer because he felt as though much like a designer hangs drapes in a room, he was draping the theater with sound in a very creative way that 
was more of a grounding in storytelling than the technical fields of mixing and, and editing. And mm. it's, it's grown to the point today where sound designers, if you will, are much respected uh, collaborators in the filmmaking process. They're not what might used to have been considered kind of like a bath at the lab where you know, the film goes in <laughs> one end and sound is applied to it. Um, it's, it's no longer seen that way. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, we actually, a couple of episodes ago, um, we went over the issue of Cinefix that had the article about Walter Murch. And it's the, the title of the article is Making Beaches Out of Grains of Sand. Beautiful. It seems like an apt description for, for all of the pieces that you guys have to put together. Yeah, a good description. That's typically Walter Murchian. <laughs> He's so well-spoken. <laughs> so uh, how did you get into doing audio in the first place? I got into audio and motion pictures in a really sort of weird backdoor way. I started life as a musician and a, a foreign language major in college, mm. uh, neither of which were satisfying me. And concurrently, I had been making films on my dad's eight millimeter movie. You remember Sprockets? I made, yes. <laughs> I made stop motion and then hand-drawn animation shorts with my dad's eight millimeter movie camera. And so movie mm. making was always a love of mine. And it was in the middle of college that I realized that was my calling. I was going to stop pretending I would be a translator for the UN or <laughs> a rock star and that I follow the filmmaking muse. So I dropped everything, including dropping out of college and mm. put all my guitars in a car and drove to LA, knowing that that was the film capital. And I would try to find my fortune there. And as luck and fate would have it, I was living with a friend of my dad's who had connections at Hanna-Barbera Studios, the, the guys who made Yogi Bear and the Flintstones and Scooby-Doo. Right. And he got me an interview at Hanna-Barbera because he knew of my art background and animation background. And the only job they had was in the sound department in a training program. And I excelled at the training program and they gave me a job in the sound department and at that time, I had no idea that people do what I do for a living. I had no formal film training whatsoever and that people record sound effects and edit them and mix them and build this altered reality for a film was a complete revelation to me. Huh. But I think because I had a, a good year being a, a trained musician, I, I excelled at it and it, it became what I, I really wanted to do. I really loved it and then followed it ever since. Oh, that's very cool. What did you work on at Hanna-Barbera? I worked on the Flintstones, Scooby-Doo, Super Friends, uh, Captain Caveman, probably oh, wow. 15 or 20 great Saturday morning animated, you know, cartoons. It was great, tra oh. great training. That's really great. That's actually something I remember really well from watching those is all the great little sound effects, you know, yeah. like the twinkle toes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of that is so whimsical. and. What's what's wonderful about it is that it, it helped. I think it's a great training ground for any sound designer, if you will, because it calls on you to use your imagination and not hear what you see. And mm -hmm. those of us who became good at it at Hanna-Barbera used to laugh and joke when we would have to hire what we'd call civilians, guys from the outside, <laughs> like we'd hire a guy who had been cutting Magnum P.I. or any one of a number of TV uh, sitcoms or they, they were what we called the live action guys. Mm. We, when we needed an extra guy, they'd come in and they, they really didn't understand 
the sensibility of cartoons because they didn't know how to think outside of the box. If, mm-hmm. if in a cartoon, somebody hits you on the head, you don't hear that. You don't hear a, a meat sound. You want to hear something whimsical like birds chirping. And uh, that was very hard for some guys to learn. But it gave those who accepted it, it gave them that extra sort of brain shift to be able to move into the, the realm of sound design where anything can sound like anything. So uh, how did you make the move into doing feature films? Well, I saw Star Wars two years into my tenure at Hanna-Barbera, and it just Mm -hmm. flipped my lid. Uh, It it, it made me realize, since I had never been critically listening up until my start in the film business, I I started listening, and then I heard Star Wars, and I thought, that's the apotheosis. That's as good as it can be for sound, the Hmm. way the work that Ben Burt did contributed and supported and told the story with sound in a very innovative way. I thought I've found it. I'm staying here and this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And I hope to achieve something as great as that Hmm. to more directly answer the question. Once I had that epiphany, I started making it known that I wanted to get into live action films. I wanted to work on a film like star Wars. So a group of buddies of mine managed to sort of escape Hanna-Barbera and get out to the (laughs) studios. And one of them ended up at Paramount Studios and I begged him to get me an introduction and he did. And he got me an apprenticeship at Paramount where my first project was working on Star Trek, the motion picture. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was it was amazing luck and good fortune for me. Oh, that's really great. What what sort of stuff did you do for that? Uh, I was the ADR assistant uh, to an old cantankerous guy named Sean Hanley, who taught me everything. <laughs> and um, he ended up getting sick on the project and handed it over to me because I was I had been apprenticing, just watching and helping him. But I was the only one that knew the movie. So they mm. gave they gave me sort of run of the movie as this young 20 year old kid because I knew it and had been doing it for several months. Oh, wow. Yeah. More good fortune. Did you have anything to do with the, uh, the V'ger sound? That <laughs> <laughs> um, no, my greatest guy, you know, that's a, that's a long story in and of itself, because as you can imagine, uh, Robert Wise and the entire sound team struggled with coming up with something that everybody liked and approved of. Mm-hmm. And we struggled with it literally to the last day of the mix. I mean, oh. it was one of those classic cases of it needed greatness, but everyone only knew what it wasn't, not what it was. Mm-hmm. So we had three very well-known sound effects creators and musicians building elements. We had sound editors creating things. And every day we'd have a a running of audio for Bob Wise on the mixing stage. And, you know, hey, Bob, what do you think about this? You know, and he'd he'd have a note and he'd go back and months and months would go by before we ever got anything that he really liked. Um, In in the end, V'ger as an entity, before you actually get to the center of the sort of the nucleus of V'ger, where Decker gets subsumed with Ilea, right. the, all of that was done with the beam in Jerry Goldsmith's scoring session. So whenever you saw V'ger, you heard that boom. <laughs> that was a musical instrument done in the score. Mm. The difficult task for us was making V'ger talk at the very end where Kirk and Spock actually have a, a dialogue with it. And that was something right. that we created as a sound effect, if you will. Well, my biggest contribution was the making of and processing of the Ilea voice when she was, uh, f- after she had just been digitized. 
Mm. Kind of that uh, muffled vocoder sort of sound. Kind of. It wasn't a vocoder, but it was a lot more elaborate than that. But uh, yeah, mm. that's 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 it. <laughs> oh, and, and another one, a, a fun one to look for is in the very beginning in the uh, Colinar or Coinar. I can't remember the Vulcan expression for it. Mm, Colinar. Yeah, where Spock is having the last bit of human expunged from him. Bob had shot it. I may get this 180 degrees wrong. Bob had <laughs> shot it in English and mm. he realized that was a mistake and that was untrue to the fans. And so in post-production, we looped uh, Leonard Nimoy speaking in Vulcan uh, right. and tried to jam it into his mouth where he was speaking English words. And it's, you know, look, this is my first job as an ADR editor and it's an awful job and I'll be the first one to admit it. And it's really <laughs> a low point to go look for in the film because it, it, the lip sync is just awful. <laughs> <laughs> and that was something I've seen you mention in a couple of other interviews that you've actually um, kind of developed languages for aliens and creatures. Yeah. Is that one of the ones that you did as well? Or? Well, no, Vulcan had long since been established. That that, that we got, um, I'm trying to remember the fellow's name who did oh, it. Oh, Mark Okrand? I think he is either, it wasn't, Okrand may have established Vulcan, but it was another guy who was on the VFX crew that I think actually wrote out the translations for us. Oh. So we, we just gave them to Nimoy and he, you know, did them phonetically. But right. yes, I have invented languages and I, I have a long history of making creatures talk and make weird noises. Can you give me a few examples of the languages? Gremlins comes to mind. I don't have my, after 130 films, I can't remember them all. <laughs> but Gremlins comes to mind because we had to invent a little sort of fake language that was a, a combination of like child speak, like one and two syllable words, mm. along with phrases and things we plucked from, from jargon. Like when gremlins don't like anything, they say kaka which of course mm -hmm. is Yiddish and English <laughs> slang for shit. And when they, they, they eat something they don't like, they use the Yiddish treif. And uh, mm. we, we co-opt two or three or four other phrases like that. And none of that had been anticipated during the production of Gremlins. But Joe Dante had the foresight to put me on as, as a sound creator to start mm. coming up with what the Gremlins would sound like. It was a really fun process because I got to spend nine months just recording and creating and building languages and sounds and recording animals and things in zoos. And it was really fun. I'd get to bring the animators and this never happens today. The animators would come and the puppeteers would come to my sound studio and I'd play them just raw elements like one time I recorded a, a pit bull and got these really, and the, a lot of those sounds are in the movie today as the sounds of gremlins when they attack. Mm. And uh, the, the, you know, I just play these raw sounds after coming out from the field for the, uh, the animators and based on their response, I'd know whether I had a hit or not. And I, <laughs> I think there was this really great symbiotic relationship of them giving me ideas and showing me their puppeteering techniques and what Joe allowed them to do with them opening and closing the mouths and what mm. I could do with sound and how that would infuse their performances. It's really fun. It does sound like a lot of fun. Is that something you do a lot? Is that kind of like creating something from scratch versus like basing something that's in the real life of the production? You're, you're kind of coming up with something that people have never heard before. Yeah, that's a big part of what I do. And it, it's always surprising to me that that it's left to post-production. There's there's so much that can be done 
If you do it during production, I've been brought mm. on very rarely during production so I could design and infuse and inform production with sound as inspiration versus post-production when you're, you're kind of stuck and the images are what they are and you only have the look that you have. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you had only opened the mouth of the creature this much longer or put this much kind of articulation in it, you could you, you can do so much more. Hmm. A good example of that is I, I did this Jack the Giant Slayer a couple of years ago mm-hmm. and uh, I got brought on long after production had finished and I not only had to figure out and create what giants sounded like when they speak English because the actors' voices didn't have the weight and heft that you'd expect of a 25-foot-tall being. <laughs> but, sure. but we also had to kind of figure out their sort of level of sophistication, intelligence, and language. Oh, here's a good example. I mean, when I started on Jack the Giant Slayer, I, I mulled over the, the poem in my head. I, I thought, fee-fi-fo-fum, <laughs> I smell the blood of an Englishman. And so the first thing that comes to mind to any even casual observer or listener is smell. That's mm. a sound. I couldn't believe that the filmmakers didn't address this key component of giant behavior. So it wasn't until post-production that they began adding giants sniffing and smelling because that's part of their behavior. Mm. And so that, those were my suggestions. And of course, at great expense to modify visual effects. <laughs> But everybody understood that it was a vital component to the characters. You know, another thing is, is that while we had speaking parts for Fallon and, and Fee and Fi and Foe and Fum for the mm. sort of the featured giants, there are hordes of other giants and no one had really addressed what they would sound like. And as you'll have probably read with Ben Burt and a host of other really influential sound designers, sometimes the best way to get those sounds are to do them yourselves. And that's what I did. I ended up. <laughs> in the course of a year, voicing all the other giants oh, wow. that didn't speak English, including the, the, the sort of the big set piece where you meet that first giant and he sticks his head right into the camera. And mm. all that's me in front of a microphone with some simple processing and clever editing to make it fit. Huh. So, yeah, I have to do a lot of that. I mean, if I had my resume in front of me, which I should probably pop up, I've done <laughs> so many creature movies. I've had to make creatures sound. Uh, Fifth Element. There's all sorts of crazy creatures I had to make sounds for, the Mondashuans, the, mm. the big ugly guys that are the, the antagonists, and, uh, and the peace-loving guys that look like the big Wurlitzer organs, and, <laughs> and uh, this, uh, there were so many creatures in that. It's amazing how much of what you're seeing is, you know, it's CGI plus the sound. And if it weren't for your, your sound, then you wouldn't feel that this was something new that you hadn't uh, encountered before or wouldn't have the impact that it would have otherwise. Yeah, it's it's a little strange to me. <laughs> I can't quite explain that. And uh, in this episode, we're covering Raiders of the Lost Ark and Dragon Slayer. But, and you did some work on Raiders, correct? Yes, I did. Forgive me if I ask you some questions that you maybe didn't have direct involvement with, but uh, where did the idea come from uh, in Raiders of kind of like overemphasizing some of the sounds, like uh, where the sound of the guns is much bigger guns and the sound of the punches are are huge and things like that? Well, I would say initially that comes from Ben Burt, um, who was a big fan of those uh, B serials from the uh, you know forties and fifties. Yeah, and Ben was a was one of four members of that sound team. Ben, uh, as the sound designer, right. uh, Richard Anderson, Stephen Hunter Flick, and myself. 
we all shared a, a similar passion for those kinds of movies and the desire to make it feel a little bit bigger than life. Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, you know, a real fun example of that, too, which maybe you knew about, but I'll mention anyways, is the the whole truck chase sequence. Um, mm-hmm. My partner, Richard Anderson, designed and edited that entire sequence. And Steven Spielberg had said in a spotting session with us that he wanted the truck to feel more heroic when Indy drove it to just mm-hmm. to give it some differentiation. It's just a clever filmmaking device. Richard came up with the idea. And if you listen, now that you know, it, it's as clear as day. When Indy drives the truck, Richard added lion and tiger growls and roars to give it weight <laughs> and fierceness. And every time he accelerates, when Indy's at the wheel, you'll hear those lion and tiger roars. But if you don't know they're there, it just sounds different and interesting. Hmm. So that's the kind of thing that we tried to achieve with Raiders. Another good example that I had a lot to do with was the monkey that's uh, Sulla's, not Sulla, who's the bad guy. With oh, the, 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 the guy on the motorcycle? Yeah, the guy with the motorcycle, who is yeah. my voice, by the way. Um, uh-huh. The monkey, of course, they didn't record it. It didn't really make any sound on the set, but we knew we wanted it to be slightly anthropomorphic. So I first started thinking that we could create the, all those monkey sounds with real monkey sounds. So I spent months recording monkeys and had sort of a, an interesting approach where I could edit small little monkey phrases in the rhythm and envelope of human speech. Mm-hmm. But it still didn't feel like it was sentient. And because there's two or three moments in the movie where you see the monkey throw a look or or make a little funny sound and you think his owner understands what he's saying. So I remembered, hearkening back to my Hanna-Barbera days, a fellow by the name of Frank Welker, a really famous a sort of modern day Mel Blanc, right. who in a recording session for Scooby-Doo was screwing around off mic and he made monkey noises. <laughs> and I just, you know, and that's something I just, I heard in at Hanna-Barbera and I threw out, I was like, oh, he's, you know, I got to get rid of that. And five years later, ding, the light bulb goes off. God, Frank Welker did that monkey sound. So we brought him in and he revoiced all the monkey and did this amazing approximation of real monkey and like speech and sentience. And it was huh. just just marvelous. And, and that's that's that layer of sort of exaggerated realism that we were going for that really made the movie great. Do you know what the sound of the arc was? The, uh, the kind of that that low rumbly thing that you kind of hear when it's in the hold of the ship? And yeah, I know it well, and it's it's a synth sound that Ben made. I don't know oh, where really? he made it from, but I have imitated it a number of times because I've been <laughs> asked for it by a number of people, and uh, I've imitated it on a, a very simple analog synthesizer. It's not difficult to create. It's just something that sticks with me from the film. But this is the genius of Ben Burt, is that (laughs) he knows at just the right moment when to use what. I mean, Ben, like most of us, leans on organic and acoustic sound because, Mm. and there's a lot of reasons, one of which is this sort of psychoacoustic association the brain has with real sound that synthetic Mm -hmm. sound doesn't have, and therefore it desuspends belief so Mm. that you believe that sound actually occurred. Uh, So Ben, as all of us, starts with real sound most of the time, but he knows when to break those rules. And the arc is an example of that. He went to a synthesizer to create it. And uh, speaking of using the right thing in the right place, uh, there's a question that my son wanted me to ask you, which is, uh, 
<laughs> how do sound designers or, or dialogue editor or whoever does it um, decide when and where to use the Wilhelm scream? Well, well that's, that's a fun topic. Um, you know, Ben started it on Star Wars because he's, among many things, he's a, an aficionado and collector of sound. And mm-hmm. he has been studying the history and the creation of sound in cinema all his life. And he was a fan of that sound and, and used it liberally in Star Wars. And then my partner, Richard, worked on Star Wars with Ben, and we knew it would be a trick we'd use in Raiders as well. And I think there's three Wilhelms in Raiders. And this was an inside joke between Ben and Richard and I uh, for a good 15, 20 years. I don't think until mid to late 90s did we get outed. Um, And it, it became sort of an industry trope that I think is now overused and uh, mm. none of us do it anymore. I think it's sort of at the other side of the bell curve where it's <laughs> so the, the, the last guys are figuring out that it's funny, but it's, it's sort of lost its charm, I think. So it is usually the a sound effects editor that puts it in a particular spot. I, I did my, my last use of it, which was my swan song, was in a movie called The Spiderwick Chronicles. And I had to create goblins and pixies and fairy voices. Oh, there's another movie where I had to make hundreds of weird mm. noises for creatures that didn't exist. And I put in a goblin Wilhelm. I had, <laughs> I had a voice actor imitate it for me. And then I played it backwards as he fell out of the ceiling. And that's the last <laughs> time I used it. I see you worked on Steven Soderbergh's Kafka. Oh, yeah. How was that experience? Well, that was great. Steven's been a friend of mine for a long time since I met him well before Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and we were roommates for a time. Mm. So I, were, I, have, I have a, I'm a guitarist as well, and I have a song in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and mm. we've been buddies for a long time. So it seemed natural that his next big film we would do together. So because we spent many a night staying up late and drinking beer and talking about movies, he understood that most filmmakers didn't appreciate sound in the way that we thought they should. So Mm. he brought me on in pre-production along with Larry Blake and fought for the the money in the budget to do so. And I was on Kafka for a year and I got to comment on script before it was finalized. I got to comment on production. They flew me to Prague and I was in Prague for eight weeks, 10 weeks during production, backing up uh, production sound as well as going out in the field and recording new fresh elements for the film. Then I came back to L.A. and Larry and I edited and mixed the movie together. So it was a real soup to nuts, complete sound job. And if there's a film in my career and maybe in modern filmmaking that you can point to and say, that's what a sound designer does, it would be Kafka because I did everything, even recorded music and score. So everything you hear, Larry Blake and I had a hand in. Oh, wow. So it was a great experience. That's a, a real favorite of mine, of, of his films. And uh, I'm really sad that it, it never even got a DVD release, uh, let alone a Blu-ray. So I think I, I, think I have a DVD. I, it, oh, really? it, it came out recently. And not only did it come out very recently, but Stephen is working on a box set of all of his films for, oh, wow. for Blu-ray that's going to be really great. Oh, well, I'll have to look into that. Uh, mostly Miramax. I, it probably won't be the this Ocean's Eleven's movies, but it'll, I'm sure it'll be all the Miramax movies. 
another one that's a kind of a weird guilty pleasure for me, but uh, you worked on Stigmata. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's, uh, I mean, the script uh, has some things to be desired, but the movie is just fascinating to me in the way that it's cut. It was one of the first films that I'd saw where the entire film seemed to be cut like a rock video. And just the way the sound integrated into that is pretty fascinating to me. Yeah, that was an interesting film. I mean, it certainly wasn't all it could be as a film. <laughs> Left quite a lot to be desired. But I believe Rupert came out of music videos. Right. That was part of his style and approach. And obviously it infused the way it was shot. Um, in terms of the way it was sounded, it was sounded maybe with a more musical approach than most because. Being a musician, I lean towards sound where you can't tell where the sort of the border is between sound effects and music because I'm a musician myself. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create sort of music concrete tonal atmospheres that could be score. You know, it could be something that, uh, oh, who's the guy that did Koyana Scotty? Um, oh, um, Philip Glass. Philip Glass. Yeah, I, I wanted to create sound environments and not just sound effects for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rupert really liked that. And it, it became especially important because there was great controversy about the score. They, he fought with the studio about who would score it. He won huh. the fight, but kind of lost the battle. He, he hired uh, Billy Corrigan from Smashing Pumpkins. Huh. And as we all kind of expected, this was Billy's first film. He created a lot of really interesting pieces, if you will, or ideas or sketches, but mm -hmm. it never felt like a unified score. And so at a mixing stage, there would be big fights between the studio and Rupert. And where I got to shine was they, they'd sort of default to what I had done because it was, I was Switzerland. And it was like, well, I don't like the <laughs> score. Well, I really like the score. Well, what did Mangini do there? Let's listen to that. And that was the way sometimes to, to solve an argument was my, my, where some of my work was working on that same level. So that was the way they, they got through a sequence sometimes. So what, what's the, uh, some of the favorite films that you've worked on as, as far as like being able to have as much control as you want and, and doing interesting work? It's really hard to pick. Um, sure. Because I have a lot of favorites. One of my most recent was uh, this Gavin O'Connor film, Warrior, mm. which you must see if you haven't. It, it's, I, have, I have not. But. It's not a. It's not for the, your fan base because it's a drama and there's no visual effects in it <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, but it's an incredibly meaty and beautifully acted and directed and written film. So that's the beginnings of it for me. If a film works, I'm already really happy. But mm. then Gavin is one of those filmmakers like Soderbergh, like Luc Besson on The Fifth Element. I had a similar experience mm -hmm. um, who just said, Mark, go do your thing. Not only say go do your thing, but unlike most filmmakers, when we got to the mix stage where it all comes together, you have the director and the composer and the sound designer and the producer and everybody, Gavin included me as a collaborator just as much as he did his writer and his producer. He'd always say, Mark, how does it sound? What do you think? This is our final mix. Is, is this everything it can be? And mm -hmm. to be able to participate like that is everything when you feel invested in a movie. Luc Besson was like that on The Fifth Element. I'll never forget I was on 
Fifth Element for a really long time. And they brought me on just after production to finish. Mm. And as we do, we spot the movie with the director and the editor and we talk about ideas and then the sound people go away and we fabricate things. And then you begin to preview your, your elements with the director before you get to the mixing stage. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget my first preview session with Luke. I had designed the sound of the air cars and you know, you're always a little bit nervous. It's like a little bit of stage fright. You don't know if people are going to accept you. You don't know if the director will accept your effects. Mm-hmm. And I played two or three samples of the air cars and Luke said, yeah, that's really great. I said, okay, great. Now I have this other example of this. And he said, no, Mark, we're done. I'm going to leave now. And he literally left me alone for seven <laughs> months. Wow. To me, he epitomized everything that I imagined the sort of quintessential French director would be. Mm. Uh, an artist himself who values and appreciates all the other artisans around him. And I think he knew, like all directors know, that if you hire the best in everything, the best cinematographer, the best editor, the best hair and makeup, the best production design, you can Mm. kind of let them go and do their thing and that you'll, they'll come back with great results and all they need is gentle little pushes. And that's the way Luke was so much so that he didn't hear any of my work for seven months until he came to the final mix, a point at which it's almost (laughs) too late to change anything. Wow. And that was just thrilling. You worked on the two Looney Tunes live action movies as well, right? Well, yeah, I, I, you know, <laughs> that, that Hanna-Barbera background, sir, you know, held me in good stead. I, <laughs> I, I became the sort of go-to cartoon guy. <laughs> also having announced very early in my career to the entire community that I wanted to be the next Treg Brown. Uh, I don't know if you stop me if you know who Treg Brown is, but no, I don't. Treg was, he was credited as film editor for the Looney Tunes shorts for their entire run. Oh, wow. Uh, And he not only edited picture, but recorded and edited all those wacky sounds for the Looney Tunes shorts for Mm. whatever that is, 12, 13 years, you know, the whole Chuck Jones, Fritz Freeling, uh, Bob McKimson run. Mm -hmm. To me, he's the model of great sound design because he could kind of find the essence of a real sound and sort of turn it on its head and make it something else in a cartoon. The Tasmanian devil is an inertia starter to a biplane motor. The tongue blips from the roadrunner <laughs> are flipping your, your thumb in a Coke bottle. I, mean, I, you know, I could go on for days about the amazingly ingenious sounds he created or extrapolated. What kid doesn't know all those loony sounds that he created for the Looney Tunes show. So I made it publicly known that I wanted to be the next Trek Brown and <laughs> the community gave me my chance. <laughs> How do you start? What's your process to like design something that's, it doesn't exist in the real world. You know, it's like, what do you start with? It's a simple and complex process all at once. I suppose mechanically I start by going out and recording a lot of raw sounds Mm-hmm. for inspiration, knowing that I'm going to twist and turn them somehow into what I want them to be. But psychologically, I look for real life associations or metaphor, because I think psychologically, the audience is looking for something to associate with and sort of sink their teeth into to make it easier to understand a scene. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you give me a, a scenario, one that comes to mind is The second Star Trek I did, which was Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, there's a sequence where they've gone back in time to deliver the whales and 
The right. bird of prey is crashing into San Francisco Bay and it's hurtling through the atmosphere out of control. And, you know, where others may struggle wondering what does a, a futuristic spaceship sound like when it's crash landing was quite simple to me. I remember this sound from the World War II aerial dogfight movies where mm-hmm. you'd hear the, the plane heading into the ocean and you hear this high pitched whine that in all the sound effects libraries, they called strut whine. It was a zing, and it's going up and up and up and you know the thing's going to crash every mm-hmm. any second. And I thought the audience will immediately identify with that sound as A, aircraft, B, speed, and C, out of control and probably going to crash. So hmm. it allows the audience to make an immediate association. So, of course, you can't use just that sound because you'd be called out for cheating. You know, it's, that's the sound <laughs> of an airplane. So you take the essence of that sound and then you build it to match what you're using in the film. So it's, it's, it's kind of like really simple real world modeling from a psychological standpoint. Mm. Then it's just a lot of hard work and mechanical recording and trial and error and screwing around in the studio. What it usually doesn't entail for me is a lot of use of synthesizers Mm. because as I said a little bit earlier, because of the lack of the real world acoustic nature of synthetic sound, it doesn't live in an acoustic space. There's none of the oral clues that work on a subconscious level for the brain. And Mm. so when you hear acoustic sound, the brain interprets it as real sound and accepts it more readily than synthetic sound. So it's always a good first start for building something or creating something you've never heard before. Mm, that seems uh, similar to Walter Mersch's philosophy when he was doing the sound for THX 1138, where all of the stuff that's digital in the future is still modern day analog sounds just kind of tweaked in some way. Yeah, we identify more quickly. And you, you kind of got to use that shorthand in a movie. You just don't have a lot of time to tell a story and sound can't be quite as sophisticated maybe as we'd like it to be because we have to move the story forward. Is there a person or, or people or movies that are kind of your biggest inspiration as far as, you know, what, what informs how you design sound? There are so many. It's, it's really hard to count, but there's two, two really old ones, War of the Original, War of the Worlds and, and, Forbidden, oh, yeah. and Forbidden Planet. War of the Worlds for its really inventive use of sound. It was sound that... I remember seeing that as a preteen or, you know, maybe as an eight or nine year old and having mm-hmm. those sounds, the sounds scare me. Oh, the sounds of those heat rays. Yeah, I yeah. love that. And the scanner heads and everything. It was just, it was brilliantly done. And, and, you know, like Ben Burt, I went on my own forensic studies at Paramount and found those original raw elements mm. uh, in their library and the things that they were created from. And then Forbidden Planet, because Louis and B.B. Barron, who created that soundtrack all on their own. I mean, they are literally true classic sound designers because they created the entire soundscape with these weird electronic components and it encompassed sound effects and music and all at the same time. And you never could tell which was which because it was really both all at the same time. And Mm. that's something I aspire to some days to deliver a soundtrack like that, all from kind of one mind and one place of creativity. Mm. And I, I heard you in an interview saying that uh, Frank Darabont was uh, working on the the rights for Forbidden Planet and maybe yeah. remaking it. Is oh, that... he, I think he had to give it up. I, he hasn't oh. talked about it in, in a decade, at least since since the Green Mile. So I, it's languishing somewhere. But I, I sure hope I can get my hooks into it someday. Are there any um, 
projects or, or personal things that you're working on right now that you'd like to? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you about two projects and then a side project. I'm about to go back onto a Gavin O'Connor film called Jane Got a Gun, which is a really, really different dark Western with Natalie Portman and Joel Edgerton. Hmm. And it's just fantastic. And uh, Gavin is doing a lot of really cool stuff stylistically, including hiring uh, Lisa Gerard from Dead Can't Dance uh, mm-hmm. to do the score, a really non-traditional approach for a Western. So that's going to be great. And then in the fall, I'm going to do a Black Mass, a Scott Cooper film with Johnny Depp about Whitey Bulger, the Irish mafia guy who right. grew up in Boston and terrorized the police and everybody else. And then finally, um, I am developing a sound recording slash playback slash, I don't even know what to call it yet because I don't have a name for it. I'm (laughs) building a microphone and a software package to create high density speaker array audio for Dolby Atmos and large audio installations. Mm. So building a one of a kind, the prototype will be done in a month for a microphone that will capture audio that can then be reproduced in speaker arrays up to 64 channels and a workstation plug-in that does all the steering and decoding. And we don't really have anything like that in motion pictures. You know, we have six and eight channel microphones and they're kind of okay, but they don't really take advantage of the new high density arrays like Dolby Atmos, where you can have up to 64 speakers. Hmm. So look for that in the, in the coming year. Very cool. So where can people find out more about your work? I have a blog that I only contribute to maybe once or twice a month, but that you can at least see on my blog at markmangini.com what I'm working on. And you can see interviews if you're interested in that kind of stuff and hear what I'm thinking about sound in general. So that's a good place to go. I suppose I should start writing about this new hardware software venture. It's been kind of top secret for a while, but now that we're getting really close and I have some interest from Dolby and the studios, uh, Mm. it it could be a really cool thing because what what I'd really like to see happen with it is to kind of break free of the tradition, the 80 year tradition of putting one microphone out on the set and capturing dialogue monorally. I mean, that's just crazy. Hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping to have some success with this. Well, definitely let us know when that uh, stuff is released. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to spread the word. Come back, have me back again. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> we'll about do. it. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Mark, for being on. Yeah, my pleasure, Mark. Thank you. It's time for the Optical Trivia Contest, brought to you by Cinefix. What would summer be without its celluloid superheroes? And what would Cinefix be if they didn't give each its due. So faced with dynamite images from Captain America, the Winter Soldier, and the Amazing Spider-Man 2, they've decided once again to share the glory and lend their cover to both films. But that's not all. Their dynamite summer issue also includes stories on two other summer hits, Godzilla and Maleficent. And there's a special surprise waiting that will blow your mind. An article on the legendary Willis O'Brien and his bitter rivalry with producer Herbert M. Dolly that challenges long-held assumptions about what was at stake and who was to blame. You're not going to want to miss this revelatory expose. Multi-Oscar winner Dennis Muren says a shocking betrayal fit for Extra or TMZ finally gets told in Cinefix, and it's a doozy. Issue 138 is out now, and you can order barcode-free copies with either cover from their online store. Order your copy now at cinefix.com. 
If you want to enter to win a free one-year print subscription to Cinefix Magazine and the very last of the gold foil-stamped magazine slipcases to keep them in, answer this question. When George Lucas first came up with the name for his pulp action hero, it wasn't Indiana Jones, it was Indiana blank. Fill in the blank and send your answer to feedback at opticalpodcast.com. Now this is the same contest that was in episode 6A, so we're, we're extending the length of time that you have to enter since we're giving ourselves a little bit of breathing room until the start of season two with episode seven. So you have until July 30th to enter the contest. Find past winners and full contest rules at opticalpodcast.com slash contests. And now reprising his role from episode 6A is editor Brian Newell to talk with me about Dragon Slayer and the invention of Go Motion. This is the first time I've actually I'd actually seen this film. I never saw it when I was a kid. How about you? Exactly the same for me. I had heard about it, uh, and all I knew about it going in was Peter McNichol. Oh yeah, and I, I knew that he was in it, and that I, I couldn't imagine a starring role for him. Just <laughs> to me, he's such a he's he's the character actor. But mm. I mean, the first time I I noticed him was in Ghostbusters Two. I think as Vigo's lackey. Yeah, Janusz. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, that is to me, that's him. I mean, that's <laughs> his quintessential role. It is, I think. Um, and man, I, I, I didn't even think about, he just looks so young in this <laughs> and it didn't feel like it was that much later, but man, he, he just, yeah. So what, 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 what did you think? You know, I actually liked it a lot. I, it was fairly by the numbers, young rogue saves princess kind of story mm-hmm. but the dragon itself was pretty amazing and i and i kind of like the political maneuvering of the king being yes even though he's kind of smarmy but once it gets to the point where it's like well i'm making money off this dragon so i'm going to lock this uh, <laughs> sorcerer kid away for a while but then now my daughter is in danger so uh, yep. hey Hey, <laughs> don't you, uh, don't you want to help me out here? <laughs> yep. Yep. And, and, the the lottery element, it was a nice little, uh, aspect of it. Mm. Um, you know, I thought the tone was a little strange. I felt like it didn't seem to want to know how, whether it wanted to be funny or not. Mm. It was, I thought it wasn't too bad as far as tone. Cause there's even any other supernatural, you know, movie like, I mean, it's not to the point of Ghostbusters where everything's a joke, but, you know, mm-hmm. kind of injecting little bits of humor here and there. That didn't bother me so much. I thought it was kind of a weird choice of music at the end, which mm-hmm. suddenly sounded like some circus calliope instead of the rest of the music <laughs> in the film. And I was kind of confused about that. But I, I like most of the music in the film. But yeah, eh. I mean, I don't know if you agree, but it sort of sounded like. They said that they basically wanted to make a dragon movie and they sort of... The producers, Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood uh, were the partners on that, right? And they wanted... Yes, exactly. Um, It seemed like it was a movie that was sort of started with the idea of doing amazing dragon effects and then Mm -hmm. sort of figuring out after that, you know, building the story. I mean, obviously they wrote the story first, but it seemed like really advancing dragon effects technology (laughs) was sort of central to 
them wanting to make this. Right. I think part of the appeal of it, too, was that the type of effects that were being done at ILM, it was kind of a big step forward from a lot of the effects that were done before it. And they wanted to take advantage of that. Okay, so ILM was working on Raiders of the Lost Ark and Dragon Slayer at the same time. I believe Raiders started a little earlier. That was actually the first outside movie that ILM had worked on outside of the, you know, the two Star Wars movies. Yep. You know, they had access to this new equipment and personnel who had been working together for some time. I think that was part of why the effects at ILM were so good. Was obviously, they're paying attention to this stuff technically and, and very smart people, just like people who had worked on earlier effects films had, but that they had the advantage of having worked together for so long that they could kind of build up a facility and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a camaraderie with each other that they could, you know, be a little bit more efficient and a little bit more technically proficient just by virtue of having a solid base to work from instead of just kind of getting together for one film and then disbanding again. Yep. And they're figuring it all out together about, you know, what stuff can we get away with, you know, mm-hmm. on set? What stuff can we do here? How can we sort of blend the elements? and. Mm-hmm. This was a time when you had to be super creative and inventive <laughs> if, if you want to do advance, because they also obviously were so interested in advancing the technology. Mm-hmm. And also they were pushed forward by uh, George Lucas's desire to have this become a viable business on its own. Right. And they had, as they said in the uh, Cinefix article, they had a lull between the Empire Strikes Back and Revenge of the Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> and they hadn't been renamed at that point, I guess. Right. Yeah. So they needed, you know, some way to keep the company afloat. So why not bring on some external films and, and keep pushing forward? It's also interesting to read about sort of the, the two teams. And I was sort of wondering sort of retroactively if the people that worked on Dragon Slayer like thought back or like, man, I could have worked on Raiders. (laughs) (laughs) They did amazing work, but only one of them is, you know, one of the most beloved movies. And the other one, I think people think fondly of it, but uh, it's, it's sort of, it's lost a little bit in the shuffle. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder though, that it's like, just from a perspective of having, worked on it whether it would be more desirable to work on raiders or more desirable to work on dragon slayer because raiders had some great effects in it and they had some really inventive stuff but then on dragon slayer they created this whole new go motion system which we'll talk about in a minute that really moved character animation forward in a big way so it's you know even though the movie itself is maybe slightly lackluster in <laughs> in the lens looking back 30 years the technology that came out of it is pretty fascinating yeah no i think i think you're totally right that might be more of an appeal for <laughs> the, the <laughs> technically minded people that were working mm-hmm. on it so matthew robbins was the director and hal bar was the, was the producer and they were they had kind of teamed up uh, several times in previous years and they wanted to do a fantasy film and they were really set on making a full-size dragon head and neck, you know, fully mobile, fire breathing, everything as Dennis Murin was quoted about. But he was really concerned about relying on the full-size creature actually working, which obviously we've talked about in previous episodes, the Jaws shark, the big Mm -hmm. live full-size mechanical shark not working all the time. They do some amazing engineering work on these creatures, but I think just in the 
short amount of time that they have to plan and put it together and build these things that perhaps they're not able to work all the kinks out that they would like to. Yeah. And and also I think their desire to show the dragon in so many different forms meant that they had to be more flexible. They didn't, you're going to want to see it walking and, and jumping around and flying and doing all this other stuff. So mm-hmm. it was pretty ambitious thinking about just the full size that's doing everything. <laughs> right. But the full size is just the head and neck and then just the they head had, and neck. Right. Yes. Well, they had separate like, feet and a little bit of the legs as well so i could kind of stomp around in the mud and you know mm-hmm. be next to somebody which were apparently based on chicken feet they could look like <laughs> big chicken feet but and the the rest of the the dragon was based on uh the look of a flying reptile called ramphorhanchus yeah, <laughs> have you ever heard of that i can't pronounce it i had never heard of that no i hadn't either you know all i know is like pterodactyls and pteranodons <laughs> yep. I thought all exactly. of the flying dinosaurs started with PT something, right? <laughs> yeah. No, apparently not. It, isn't it's in the fa- I think it's in the same family. I, I I would love to talk to uh <laughs> <laughs> some what's the word I want? Um, a paleontologist? Our, uh, our, yeah, paleontologist, that's yeah. the one. <laughs> um but it, I mean it kind of looks it really looks like a bird. Yep. But it's got the claws at the end of the wingtips there. So it's it's a real thing that they're going, you know, trying to take that biology and use that to inform the design of this mythical creature. Yeah. It was something that they brought up a few times in the design of it in the article that was they didn't want to have something that had four legs that it could stomp around on <laughs> plus wings. Because even though you see that a lot in drawings of dragons, oh. it's it's not something that really happens in nature. Pretty much everything on this planet that has, that's a mammal has four appendages and if it's two legs and two you know wing arm things then it doesn't have four limbs to walk around on it kind of makes me think of the pegasus in clash of the titans in our last episode where Mm -hmm. it's like yeah how does that work how do the wings (laughs) i mean the wings are just kind of stuck on there and it makes me wonder how the muscles and, and everything work for that if it's got front limbs right there as well i clearly cared about the biology and they just kept coming back to it, wanting to cope with something that did make some kind of sense while still looking cool. <laughs> it was an amazing design by uh, David Burnett. He did a lot of the pre-production design. And he also designed the main look of the dragon. I think it was refined a bit by Phil Tippett, who mm-hmm. uh, wanted to make some modifications so that it w- would work better as a stop-motion puppet. Because they, mm-hmm. they were from the beginning, we're looking at you know doing the full dragon you know seeing all of it at once as like a a stop motion puppet you know one of the things that phil tippett said was that they had gotten quite a bit of negative feedback on the tauntaun in uh, empire strikes back Mm -hmm. as far as it looking stop motiony kind of having that strobing freeze frame look to the animation which is what kind of got them thinking in this direction which was moving to go motion which they didn't call it that. Yeah, they didn't have a name for it, but they, <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to figure out how to make it move and automating some of that movement with a mechanical arm, either putting a motor inside it internally, which didn't seem to be a very good option because it was just the motors at that point were ones that would be strong enough to control it would be too big to put inside it. So they took the motion control technology that they were using to control cameras and instead used to control these robot arms that were then attached to 
the stop motion puppet so they could actually have the motion of the puppet controlled by the motion control machine. And that would allow them to do a couple of things, one of which is add motion blur to the puppet because it could be moving it's moving right during the exposure right and that's what eventually led them to use the name go motion because it's actually in motion while you're taking the frame as opposed to stop motion when the model is not moving when you're taking a picture of it it was really efficient too because once they figured out all the moves you know they talked about how in the past a lot of it was sort of in the animator's head, trying to remember all the different moves that the uh, stop motion puppet was going through. Right. But here they'd basically have these recorded steps. And so if you had to go back and change something, it was a lot more efficient. It seemed like they had kind of been taking baby steps toward this approach, like on Empire Strikes Back, the Tauntaun actually did have some motion control element, but it was just kind of like gross body movement. They still had to animate all of the limbs and everything by hand. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting that they even took one more baby step in the development of this, that they had built this motion control thing with several arms and they had to build a new computer. I think it was like, what, an Apple II that they kind of (laughs) modified to be able to do, I think it was 16 channels of motion control. It's like it drove 16 different motors. And they had put motion control on all four limbs and the body, but they were keeping the head and the tail separate. Phil Tippett would come in and actually hand move per frame, the the head and the Mm -hmm. tail and the jaw and everything. But they found that it actually looked worse to do it that way because half of it had this kind of like nice motion blur to it. Right. And (laughs) then you're combining two different. (laughs) Right. And the head and the tail looks strobier than they would if the entire thing was stop Mm -hmm. motion. And, you know, you kind of forgive the entire thing. But when half of it looks good and smooth (laughs) and has motion blur and the other half doesn't, it was a very weird combination. They were trying to figure out, well, how do we control that? Because the head is, you know, a little bit more delicate and we're going to see different parts of it all the time. So it's maybe harder to connect a rod to it to control it. But they Mm -hmm. eventually did figure that out. I think they had to do more rotoscoping on it to cut out the the bits of arm. Yeah, because I think they were able to on the like the lower limbs were able to put a blue bar in front of it so they could, you know, just kind of Mm -hmm. blue screen out everything or screen out or at least kind of hide. Like on its feet, they weren't able to do that, but it was in the dark (laughs) half the time anyway. (laughs) So they weren't, they were able to kind of hide that in the shadows. But on the head, they actually had to rotoscope out around the head to get rid of that control bar that was attached to it because they couldn't put blue on it because of the blue uh, bars that they were using to kind of mask out the control rods were lit internally. So that they would glow at the same color of blue as the background. Because my understanding is ILM, I don't know if this is still the case, but ILM used to like backlit blue screens. Mm-hmm. It would be like, you know, a sheet of blue and lots of fluorescent lights behind it. Uh, so it would be this one big blue panel. And they said that it actually, it, well, for one, it was more evenly illuminated because it's all one big panel that's self-contained. You're not like shining lights on it which if you have a blue screen or a green screen that's just a flat piece of fabric or a painted wall or whatever and you're shining lights on it well there's this whole thing that happens with light that's called the inverse square law (laughs) that means that 
at say one unit of distance, one foot, whatever from a light, it's this bright. And then at twice that distance, it's one quarter as bright. And then at three times that distance, it's one ninth as bright. So the light falls off really quickly. Mm -hmm. Light emanates in a sphere. It goes in all directions at once in equal amounts, right? Um, So when it hits the wall, you're going to get a hot spot because one piece of that wall is going to be closer to the light than the other pieces of the wall. Because it's, you know, the way that a plane intersects a sphere. (laughs) So you get this, (laughs) it sounds like super complicated physics, but the real upshot is that you're never going to get perfect, even illumination on a blue screen from an external source just shining on it. There's always going to be a hot spot and then fall off around the edges. And to have that blue screen with uh, the fluorescent lights evenly lighting the entire surface behind the blue screen, you get nice even lighting, which is really, really important, especially in the pre-digital age, because you can't just go in and and clean stuff up, you know, (laughs) in different parts of of the image without huge, huge, huge amounts of work. So it's really super important to have that even lighting to be able to pull that blue out and be able to do a composite with it. And the other thing is they said that it makes less spill on whatever's in front of the blue screen, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. And spill is just, you know, that blue or green reflecting on whatever's in front of it. And that right. becomes an issue because if you get too much of that reflection, then you start to drop out that part of becoming the, transparent. The person, yeah. There was a lot of fudging. It sounded like like they had to clean some up, but there was some that was just sort of in areas that didn't matter. And then doing a, the dragon in dark <laughs> situations a lot and having it knowing that they're going to have to fudge a lot of the details and that they could get away with that stuff yeah um well lack of light hides a multitude of sins <laughs> yeah <laughs> even when digital stuff first started taking hold it wasn't until jurassic park that you saw a creature in broad daylight that was digital you know it took them right. a long time to get to that point so they had this whole motion control rig and they were still I'm sorry, I should credit Stuart Ziff, who had a development of the Dragon Mover, (laughs) the whole motion control rig with all the different arms controlling parts of the model. And then Phil Tippett still went in and hand animated, you know, bits of like the jaw opening or the eyebrow or, or whatever on the model. So there's still little bits of that, but I think it was a small enough element inside the entire rest of the go motion movement, you know, since the head itself was moving, but maybe the eyelid or the jaw movement was hand done. The whole gross movement of the head, Mm -hmm. having that motion blur was able to kind of hide the fact that not every single tiny little piece of it was motion controlled. Not only the motion of the actual puppet gave the motion blur, but I think they said that they did a version where they shot it in still frames. And it still seemed less stroby than right because of the motors. They were more um, regular, predictable, or yeah, more regular than you know the stop motion hands or whatever gauges they were using to mark you know to figure out where they were. And right, so there was some debate. It seemed like there people, some people even had different opinions about what, how much of Go Motion's you know success, yeah, is due to motion blur versus. Just the actual motion control. Just because if you tell a computer to go from point A to point B and there's 12 steps in between, 
it knows exactly how much to move step one, steps two, step three, step four. Whereas a human is just kind of estimating and my, there might be like they move a little too far in this one frame or not quite far enough on this other frame. So there's like a little bit of jerkiness to the motion that's just, well, because a human hand was involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's still amazing that this type of animation looks as good as it does. And then, you know, having the go motion kind of refine that, you know, it's an, an interesting step. And actually the author, Stephen S. Wilson, um, who had actually go on to write Tremors, which is <laughs> a, he really? a real, yeah, a real oh, wow. uh, favorite of mine. Yeah, that's um, great. But even said at the time, you know, quote, is this technological encroachment good for the art of animation? <laughs> Because I, I guess, you know, what you're saying, it's like it's removing kind of humans from the tweening process, which is, you know, yep. creating the in-between frames. I want to go from here, <laughs> point A to point B, and you get to, you know, create however many frames in between. Uh, that's sort of a, it's sort of a microcosm of the whole debate of, <laughs> you know, the advent of CGI. Is it a good thing taking away the sort of real hands-on? yeah. Not that there's a real answer. It's sort of each, everything has its own. But yeah, it is interesting how that is sort of. I don't think that it's a bad thing at all. I mean, I think it frees the animators up to do something perhaps even more ambitious because they don't have to spend the time to do. I guess I look at it as like, okay, I know I need to get from here to here. And if it's not absolutely necessary for me to figure out all of the individual frames in between point A and point B, then I don't think that's taking away artistry from humans, you know, by injecting computers into the process. I think that's enabling them to do something more ambitious because they don't have to do the busy work Mm -hmm. in between the frames that are artistic point A and point B. There's always the romantic recollections of things and then there's always the question well but was it really better or was it just harder (laughs) yeah (laughs) but they were still so hands-on with these things and and it was still so painstaking i mean i'm reading about how they might get like eight steps down the line Mm -hmm. programming the movements and they would sort of box themselves into a corner that they couldn't get out of because of, you know, the steps that they had taken, they couldn't go any further to mm. make the dragon do what they wanted to do. So they had to go back to step one right. and try to get to that point through a different avenue. So it was still super painstaking. Right. And they had joints in the armature. And we talked about this on the Ray Harry has an episode we did in episode five. The armature is kind of like the metal skeleton inside the puppet. Instead of ball and socket joints, so it could swing in any direction, this had essentially hinges, so it could only move in a certain plane of motion. If they had to move the dragon in a certain way, they would lock down some of the hinges so that those couldn't move, but other ones could. You know, obviously it needed to not be floppy, <laughs> right. but, uh, but in some situations they might get into a place where, well, they needed to make a turn and... Well, the dragon's in a position now where it can't turn that way. Right. Or they could have a get into a position where they needed to have one arm of the go motion mechanism controlling an arm or a leg need to cross over and go in front of the other one. And that was impossible. 
right? just because of the way the mechanism was built. So they really had to think within the, the constraints they had built for themselves to be able to make this work. Yeah, for sure. And it, But I, I think overall it was a really successful process. So there's three different versions of the dragon. There's the full size head and neck. Mm-hmm. You know, I it wasn't clear from the article to me whether that head actually did breathe fire or not, or whether it was all of it was done in compositing. Mm-hmm. There was a half size version of that because full size version was so huge and unwieldy. I mean, just the head and neck weighed 4,000 pounds. Oh. So the hydraulics that they had running it so it could open its jaw and blink its eyes and do whatever it needed to do were actually running at essentially max capacity. So it was <laughs> it was breaking, breaking down, down a lot. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. So they built a half size puppet that Chris Wallace devised. It was a half scale design. They could do more close ups with it and they could actually have an animator's arm up the neck and, you know, be a little bit more expressive with it. Um, but it was a lot more manageable. And then the puppet version was also filmed overcranked. That's a, you know, you'd shoot 36 or 40 mm-hmm. frames per second and then you slow it back down to 24. So everything looks in slow motion. Uh, that's trick. They'd use a lot for miniatures that would give more weight to the movement Mm-hmm. Just because we kind of perceive things that way. Things that are large seem to move yeah, slower than slower, yeah. little tiny things. And then, of course, the go motion version of the puppet. And they all intercut in the film beautifully. And especially there's a whole sequence where Galen, the little apprentice sorcerer, mm-hmm. <laughs> goes into the dragon's lair and kills yep. the little dragon babies and fights with the big mother dragon yeah, it's on its back yeah and there's a whole sequence there where it's go motion dragon with a little tiny go motion galen on its back <laughs> that look mm-hmm. amazing yeah uh, you notice now a little bit of blue screen matting issues sure. here and there but it's i mean come on this was 1981 yeah. <laughs> it was all I mean, photochemical I- Going in, watching it, you know, cold, I, I no way I could have picked out, you know, all the different. <laughs> okay, this one's a full size different. and this one's a half yeah. size and this one's a go motion. And um, the go motion does have a little bit of that stop motion look to it. So I can I can kind of tell those shots versus the puppet and the you know, full size sure. one. Yeah, if you're not looking for it. If you're not looking for it, live action, if you're just, again, not knowing it, all the elements that are there. It does go pretty, uh, pretty seamlessly. I mean, there's in that whole sequence, there's Galen standing on a rock in the lake inside the cave and the full size head looms up right. above him. And then there's a close up of the half size version snarling at him. And then he's running away <laughs> and then you see the go motion puppet chasing him. And all of them are so expressive. I mean, it's just amazing the amount of detail that is built into how can we make sure that all these different parts of the dragon's face and wings and everything are able to be animated or performed on the set if they have the puppet with the cables and several different operators you know (laughs) squeezing this handle to make the eyelid blink or Mm -hmm. you know whatever and there's a moment when the dragon comes up to its babies and realizes that they've been killed and nudges them mm-hmm. with their muzzle and you know trying to find out are they actually dead or they're just hurt or and it's actually a touching moment yeah. from this puppet yeah i mean i think they they did sort of go feeling like 
the dragon is the main character. Mm. So we have to sell the dragon above all else. Yeah. And they wanted you to see a real dragon that does dragon stuff. Yeah. You'll, you'll believe a dragon can fly. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. And, uh, well, we could seamlessly segue to the uh, flying dragon. Oh, right. Which was a, which is actually a separate model, but also with, with mm-hmm. the go motion control on it. I thought it was funny that I think it was Matthew Robbins that, you know, after they had done a lot of work, mm-hmm. thought it was like, wow, that looks great. But you know what? You don't even want to, I don't want to see him flapping his wings. Oh, yeah. He sort of felt like, it was more, he think he said regal and gave the dragon a feeling of sort of like he wasn't working too hard. Like he was just this right. gliding, soaring beast. And so I think it's rare that the director suddenly just makes your job a lot easier. Well, I can just, <laughs> I can just have it glide. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they even built this whole mechanism into the, the flying dragon that they could make the wings flap it was kind of this geared thing. And so it could flap the wings in time with the go motion photography. Mm-hmm. And they, they did use that uh, to some degree uh, from what I understand, but it was like an awful lot of shots where it's like, no, we just want to kind of look like a hawk where it's just right. gliding on the wind and not actively flapping Yep. versus flapping is kind of, you know, that's a, that's a plebeian thing to have to, yes. <laughs> to flap your arms. That's a lot of, uh, it's like, it's a lot of peasant work. <laughs> the other thing they talked about was the speed and how that was sort of an element where maybe they, they just said, screw reality a little bit. Mm. I think as they said, you know what, I know it, it can't possibly go this fast, but at a certain point we're just watching a movie from a visceral level and he wanted it to go faster. Yeah. So he just... I, I forget what they calculated the real, real speed that it would have been going. Oh, it would have been like, like 120 miles per hour. 900 miles an 900 hour. 900 miles per hour. Yeah. I, don't, I don't remember. Yeah. It was something ridiculous it was something number. absurd, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it needed yeah. to go that fast to look the way they wanted to look on screen. Right. I've worked with at least a few animators in my time doing TV work who are very focused on realism and making sure mm-hmm. that the physics are right to perhaps to the detriment of the finished product (laughs) where it's like, okay, yeah, this may be exactly what it would look like in the real world, but let's make it look dramatic Mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, they were saying there, it's like, if we actually made it look the speed that it would be as that size of dragon, it would look like it was just kind of sitting in the sky and not being an active dogfight kind of action look to it. Right. And then, of course, he crushes the crystal and that makes the wizard explode somehow. Right. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's then sort of suicidal. The smoke falling down is actually a smoke bomb uh, designed by Thane Morris, who you heard earlier in the episode uh, talk about his pyro work on, on Raiders and Dragon Slayer. But then like animating the dragon to fall down and kind of spin around in that same mm-hmm. pattern that the smoke bomb took to give it that death throw. It was really well done. Pretty spectacular finish there. And one last thing I was really amused with in the Cinefix article, they mentioned they were still deciding on backgrounds for a good chunk of the end of the film. Like all of the stuff that has crazy clouds and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. And apparently, you know, there's a huge chunk of it that was shot blue screen so that they could madden this stuff later because I hadn't quite figured out what the look was going to be. And Dennis Murin was quoted as saying, 
you know, not many films end with 10 minutes of blue screen actors in front of creative backgrounds, <laughs> which today is like, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. that's the whole movie. <laughs> At the time, I'm sure it was funny. He's thinking like, God, this is just goofy. We've just got a bunch of, <laughs> bunch of guys just playing in, you know, but How they, times uh, change. They made it work. Cool. Well, thank you for coming on to talk about both of these with us, Brian. No problem. It was uh, it was a joy, and uh, I was glad to see Raiders for the millionth time, and to get a chance to uh, <laughs> see a movie that I had not seen. Cool. Is there um, some place people can go to find out more about your work? Uh, I technically, yeah. <laughs> if you don't want to say that's okay. No, no. It, the website is bnedits.com. Okay. It's not too much interesting to see there, but uh, if you're interested in there, I have some work samples up there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for being on. Yep, thanks much. If you'd like to help support the show and fund research and development for the second season of the podcast, that's episodes 7 through 12, plus the new website that we're building, you can donate by buying a t-shirt at booster.com slash optical podcast. It also helps if you share that with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for your support. In a few weeks, we'll be talking with Cinefix publisher Don Shea about King Kong and other stop-motion animator Willis O'Brien. We'll also be chatting about early CGI circa 1981. Interesting to see how far we've come since then. Until then, remember that issue 138 of Cinefix is out now. Their summer spectacular with coverage of Captain America, The Winter Soldier, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Godzilla, Maleficent, and the update on Willis O'Brien's rivalry with producer Herbert M. Dolly. If you buy Cinefix 138 in the store, you'll find Spider-Man leaping skyward just out of reach of a fiery explosion. But subscribers will be treated to Captain America's sidekick Falcon spreading his enormous metal wings on the cover. Or you can order your choice of covers at Cinefix.com. Issue 138 is also available from the Cinefix iPad app, which you can find by searching Cinefix in the App Store or follow the link from our website. While you're at it, you might want to also grab Issue 7 in the Cinefix iPad app to read up on Willis O'Brien and follow along for our next episode. Special thanks to our guests Mark Mangini and Brian Newell, and our musical guest Digital Drew. Digital Drew also created the theme music for The Optical, which you're hearing now. You can find out more about his work at DigitalDrew, that's D-R-O-O, dot com. And thanks as ever to Michael Gower, for our beautiful Aperture logo. I'm your host, Mark Bosco. Thanks for listening. 